You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, who is losing friends in this phony conservative movement day by day. But I'm glad to do so. I'm glad to do the job that not just Americans, but other conservative hosts will not do which is to actually speak the truth on the issues that matter, irrespective of of the noise going on around us. And I know we've gotten a lot of great feedback on the last two episodes. This was 274, 275, as well as 248 and 249 I called out on my long-form discussion about the history of constitutional interpretation, the role of the courts as a concurrent jurisdiction, not sole and exclusive jurisdiction, how it got bastardized, how we disproved the other side's view, and what we could do to make things even better in light of things going off the rail the last number of decades because of the judicial supremacism. And, you know, that was on display from all sides, all sides. Now, we're going to get to other things aside for the courts today. There's a lot of other things to set the tone for this week. Uh, I just want to do a show early on, on Sunday, because I will be out Monday, Tuesday for the Jewish New Year. But I wanted to make sure we got in just some updates, because there's a lot of stuff swirling around with Congress, Obama's speech uh, that everyone's talking about. But anyway, to start off with the confirmation hearings, I listened to every bit of it the first two days, and then the third day, I just, you know, I don't know, I tuned out most of it. And then Friday, I was just, forget it, when they had that panel of 28 or so lawyers, half arguing in favor of Kavanaugh, half arguing against him. And I was like, this whole thing is built on a lie. All of them. All the senators, Kavanaugh himself, it's built on this dastardly dastardly lie we talked about as a legacy of Dred Scott that that Abraham Lincoln so passionately debunked. And, you know, one of the things we mentioned was that a court could render an opinion for an individual case, and that could be binding as precedent in the judicial branch if it's done by the Supreme Court, but it's not binding upon the other two branches. And what I mean by that is you don't use your executive powers in concert with that opinion. You use it in concert with the legitimate, authentic interpretation of the real Constitution. So first of all, you should just know Lincoln did that. He didn't just promise that in the senatorial campaign of, of 1858. He, he also referenced it in his inaugural address. He actually did it saying he went ahead, he not only declined to treat blacks like chattel, like property, he actually gave them executive control documentation, like passports. He he made them, he gave them a lot of the privileges of, of citizens, um, as well as signing into law bills that barred slavery in the territories. Or, you know, people forget that. Well, they, they were winning the Civil War, so of course they, you know, they won. So we won on slavery. Well, what do you mean? What happened to Dred Scott? I thought it's the law of the land. So, oh no, it's not really the law of the land. One of the things I wanted to point out to you guys before we just move on, just to kind of close the loop on on our week long discussion on the courts. Part of the problem with revisionist hist- historians is that. They take today's erroneous concepts that developed over time and should never have developed, and they use them as the starting point, and then they go back into history and, uh, and use the language based on that. So you know, this is where the whole misunderstanding of judicial review and Marbury comes from, where 
they take the current practice, which is the judiciary as the final eminent tribunal, and they go back into, you know, past history and like, you know, where you'll have quotes, well, you know, shouldn't we, do we have to follow an unconstitutional law in the courts? Shouldn't we just ignore it and go with the ultimate law of the land of the constitution? Oh, you see, the courts decide. Well, no. It was really the opposite. It was understood that the Congress predominates, that the default is the law is the law. Congress is the law, not the courts. They wrote it very passively, not that not that Congress that the courts are a veto. No one ever thought that. But that, look, shouldn't we I mean, so, so nowadays, we all ask the question, Daniel, Daniel, could, could we just ignore the courts? Uh, is there a way around the courts? As if the courts are the starting point nowadays. So we read that into the writings of Marshall and others back then, but back then it was the opposite. The starting point was Congress. It was, the question was, could Congress could even could the courts even could even the courts ignore it? Because the, the premise was they couldn't. And that's where people like Marshall and others thought, you know, I understand we're unelected. I understand we don't make the law. But when we're, you know, when someone comes to us for judgment, you know, let's say the Congress passes explicitly a bill of attainder. Just, all right, you know, anyone, any class of people we don't like, um, we could just confiscate their property without a trial. We could hang them without you know, a jury trial. So like, dude, like, what, what do you want me to tell you? I mean, they, he comes before me. So I look at the law. Okay. What does the law say? Yes, we could hang you. John Smith, you can be hung, but I, it, it would be a mockery if the ultimate law is the constitution. That's all he was saying. <laughs> but if, if, if the court says, you know, polygamy is a marriage binding on the States, the notion that Daniel, do we have to listen to this? Are, are, is Congress bound by that? Even Marshall, much less Jefferson, would have laughed at that notion. Would have laughed at it. You know, indeed, as I've said before, judicial review is understood properly as just a co coexisting jurisdiction along with the other two branches over constitutional interpretation and the weakest avenue to address it prospectively and then even after the fact the weakest ability to make that a binding precedent that started before that was in the 1790s there were various state and federal courts over time that ignored so to speak certain parts of federal or state laws because they said it violates the national constitution. But it wasn't viewed as a veto. So one of the cases was Kemper v. Hawkins. Um, it, it had actually had to do with the structure of the state courts, you know, and someone who had a, um, a, a ruling against him under the construction of the Virginia courts that he felt violated the Constitution. So he went to the Supreme Court of Virginia, and, and you had a lot of very um, highly regarded people. Rowan um, was on it. You had uh, Tucker, and they wrote unanimously, albeit with different rationales, different concurrences, you know, to kind of say, yeah, the law is unconstitutional. The construction, it violates the Constitution. But what's amazing is if you look at the language, and, and the reason why I quote this case is because Marbury drew upon it. They just said that um, that the Constitution was within the province of judicial interpretation, quote, as well as, unquote, the other branches. As well. It was even – even, okay, it wasn't, it wasn't them. It wasn't only them. And, and, and amazingly, they used the wording, meaning that, that we, meaning not only we, but also the judiciary, as it relates to their job, 
has a duty to uphold the Constitution, quote, on behalf of the people. Meaning, ultimately, the people decide. Now, like I said last time, they, they, they didn't expect this to come up too often because the Constitution was pretty unambiguous as it relates to major issues. It really didn't come up too often. But if it did, the understanding was you'd all slug it out with your various powers. Ultimately, the people are going to decide through protests, through writings, through elections, pressure, media, all of it put together, someone's going to buckle. It's not a perfect system, but it sure is heck better than this North Korean system that was erroneously created you know, in the 20th century. So to be clear, it doesn't take a constitutional amendment to go back to that system. It actually is our system. Now, so a lot of people ask, okay, Daniel, so then what was Jefferson's beef with the Federalists and, you know, the um, Hamiltonians, the John Marshalls of the world that wanted, if, if the way you're explaining judicial review is not judicial supremacy, it's just, uh, you know, so obviously, again, it's important when you study history to know that you have to view the language within the politics of the time. In other words, if someone were coming in a vacuum in a time machine to read the words from Democrats nowadays when they talk about equality, they'll say, well, well, well what's wrong with that? that? That sounds great. Well, you wouldn't know that they're using it in the context to push inequality. They're <laughs> the exact opposite. They're loaded terms that we understand living today. So, you know, there was Marshall's insidious intent on where he was going with this, and there's what he actually said. So, you know, what's funny is there's a lot of these, like, even on the conservative side from the Federalist Society, these guys that call themselves textualists. And they talk about, you know, focusing only on the text of the Constitution, the text of the statutes, um, and not, you know, any motivations behind it. So that's true when you're reading case law, too. If you, I mean, if you want to elevate Marbury and Marshall to everything, so you got to look at what he actually said, not what he might have intended. I don't think Jefferson had an issue with what he actually did or said. It's where he thought he was headed. Meaning Jefferson always said, Jefferson said along, you know, in, in actually the letter to Spencer Rowan, um, this judge from that Virginia Supreme Court, this is towards the end of his life in 1819. He wrote a letter saying um, each of the three departments has equally the right to decide for itself what is its duty under the Constitution without regard to what others may have decided for themselves under a similar question. Okay, you in your case did that, but me and my execution and my funding, executive, judicial, uh, um, uh, legislative branches, we're, we're going to do the way we see fit. So, you know, that, that's what he said. And he said to give the judges the right to decide that laws are constitutional and whatnot, not only for themselves in their own sphere of action, but for the legislature and executive also in their spheres would make the judiciaries a despotic branch. Now you'll say, well, Daniel, you know, the way Jefferson sees it isn't that how, you know, what Marshall is doing the way you understand it. So what was Jefferson's beef? But his beef was because ultimately they were trying to do that. Ultimately, he saw this budding monster. I don't deny that there were judicial supremacists, but the, you know, in, in terms of like the real hardcore Hamiltonians. But the thing is, that was a political view, not a legal view. No one would have told you that there's a veto power of the judiciary that's on par, for example, with the veto of an executive that is in, unassailable and it takes a constitutional amendment to overturn that. They want politically and culturally, they wanted the judiciary to guard that. Um, and, and, you know, they had a point. Remember, they weren't trying to implement gay marriage and open borders. 
you know, they were worried about, you know, the popular sentiments that went against the Constitution. And a lot of this was borne out. Again, it, this is not what we adopted in 1787, ratified in 1789. This is not the Constitution we adopted. No one will tell you there was a veto. They just felt that because these are the experts at interpreting statute, they should also be the experts at interpreting the Constitution when we have a disagreement. And politically speaking, they wanted to defer to the judiciary. And that, that came about in the 1790s. It wasn't Marbury. It was a little bit before that. What happened in the 1790s was the French Revolution. The Hamiltonians were very scared about the French Revolution. As we know, Jefferson kind of signed on to it. You know, This was the whole debate under the Washington administration between Hamilton and Jefferson over the, you know, our relationship with France. But that, that's really what it was born out of. So Jefferson feared that. He's like, all right, buddy. All right, John. You know, he hated his guts. He, hated, he was his second cousin. He hated him not just as a political adversary from the other party, but also personally. He just couldn't stand him. And, and Marshall was kind of a Weasley guy, um, my least favorite founder. And he was like, dude, I know where you're headed with this. Very cute. So not to rehash what, you know, our, our episode 248, 249 on Marbury, you can listen to it there. But one point to, to just know is, that what what Marshall actually did was the opposite of what people think he did. It's like nowadays the people think, oh, Marshall struck something down. No, he actually said, no, I'm staying out of this. You guys, um, he, I'm not forcing Marshall to give that commission to Marbury as Secretary of State. Um, you know, you must, the law is, you, you must, the executive branch, you must follow this. He wasn't telling them to do anything. Because he knew that Madison would have said F you. He knew that he would have been left off. He didn't have that power. He knew that. So he was clever. How could I grow the power of the judiciary by actually shrinking it? So he said, you're right, Jefferson and Madison. And not only that, Section 13 of the Judiciary Act is unconstitutional. Because I can't even hear this case on direct, direct jurisdiction over it. That's not part of the, the original jurisdiction of, of the Supreme Court. You're so right. See, you know how clever that is? Because, meaning, he, he wanted to say, man, you guys are so right that Marbury's lawsuit is unconstitutional because the law is unconstitutional. Wink, nod, this gives me an angle to get the judiciary into constitutional interpretation while actually agreeing with Jefferson on the case. That was, that was the kind of brilliant, you know, sly intent there. So Jefferson was pissed about that because he was like, dude, I know exactly where you're headed with this. And that's why he complained about it for the rest of his life as he saw the judiciary kind of growing in power. But if you're a true... If you're true to your words, that's all politics of the time. If you're going to take Marbury, the opinion as gospel, that's not what it said. And it did exactly the opposite. Shrunk the power of the courts, and it was never asserting the sole and final arbiter status. That's something that kind of developed in the culture among the elites, and then the people were just too intellectually lazy to understand that there's no finality just because the court in the case said so. Um, and then, you know, the courts kind of codified that, affirmed that once and for all in Cooper v. Aaron in the 50s and 60s and enshrined it in civil rights very cleverly, um, even though judicial supremacy, as we noted, was has its roots really in Dred Scott. So that's what was going on with that. Just wanted to, to just kind of close the loop on that lesson. Um, but it's important to, to remember that, you know, ultimately, ultimately, Madison is the greatest authority on this. You know, don't just look at Madison's letters and gripings after Marbury. 
Like I said, look at what he said even before. I have probably the most important quote. I'm going to put together a series of quotes here on from Madison <clears throat> that demonstrate once and for all that this notion of do you do you believe courts could strike down or not? To strike down or not is not the question. It's a false question. Meaning Daniel, you 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 don't you agree that, you know, don't you like it when when liberals do unconstitutional things in the legislature that courts could strike down? I like it to go to the court when you have a valid case that a guy is aggrieved from it and he has a fundamental right being taken away. I like it for them to rule with the Constitution. But it doesn't mean it's a veto of the law and that it's self-executing, universally binding on the other branches. I would hope they would defer to it, and I would argue tooth and nail politically they should, and will fight it tooth and nail that the court is right in that case because the Constitution's right. But ultimately, if the, if the left wants to f- fight back, then they have that ability, just like I have the ability when I disagree. I want to prove to you that Madison fell. And Madison, see, Jefferson, you might say, yeah, he was the populist. You know, Jefferson was like, let the people decide to be guy. You know, now again, that's all relative, relative to the Hamiltonians he was, but you know, even Jefferson spoke of elective despotism in the notes on the state of Virginia. I mean, he wasn't, again, he wasn't a democracy guy. None of them were. I can't stand when people accuse those of us who don't support judicial supremacy as somehow we're not. Republicanism is bicameralism, you know, states and, and the people divided, federalism, the presidential veto the executive and the legislature being separate, and then just the general body of the people being bound by a constitution. Meaning in other countries, if a legislature decides something, that's it. Here, forget about the courts. We all have an obligation to say, no, that is wrong. And and, and we're going to fight that. We're not going to abide by that. We have the right under our constitution. It's all of us. It's the body. It's the people. So Madison, as you well know, he was an ally of Hamilton originally relative to the anti-federalists just to get get the Constitution off the ground, federal government off the ground and before they split in the 1790s. You know, and this is the man that had the Council of Revision that wanted the the not the judiciary but the but the Supreme Court as part of that executive conjoined veto. And as we explained, that wasn't judicial review or judicial supremacy. It was under a completely different system that was in lieu of the presidential veto. That was his version of the presidential veto. It wasn't through executing the judicial power of adjudicating cases that you're supreme. It was That was just the check on the legislature. But once we adopted the presidential veto, there was never any understanding that they would have that power. Just an understanding that because they're the legal scholars, we would definitely listen to what they have to say on an opinion. But if it's crap, then we certainly don't have any obligation to give it force. See what I'm saying? It's not like, oh, do they have any say or any prominence or are they the final say? No, it's, it's really neither. Here's what I'm reading from page 464 of my version of Madison's writings, my uh, version of it where it just kind of puts all of his writings together. This was a floor speech he gave on, um, what is this? July, do, 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 July 17th, 1789. So literally, you're talking about the first few months of the just functioning of the House of Representatives. And, and you know, they're debating just, you know, the power over, very relevant today, over executive personnel. And, you know, the hiring, um, when you have disagreements over termination of executive, per, you know, personnel. They're trying to, you know, because you didn't, the, the Constitution didn't have that. You just had a president. 
Now, it was assumed in the Constitution you would have other high officers, but that structure had to be created. So they were creating it, you know, just like they created the judiciary, then they had a bill, they had, you know, created, created uh, the executive, and then they had to create the Bill of Rights, right? This was like the founding Congress, the setting up shop. And the question was, well, Congress is constructing it, so could we fire them too, statutorily, outside of impeachment? And as I said many times, you know, Madison was very clear that the power over the personnel had to be in the president. Of course, Congress creates it, but that doesn't mean they could, you know, fire the guy statutorily outside of impeachment because, you know, that is the power of the president. But anyway, he was talking about like when you have these disagreements with the legislative and executive branches. And and again, I'm probably going to write an article on this for this week, just so this is in writing and you know people could hopefully be influenced by it that are in Congress and whatever. But I want you guys to be the first to hear this if you've never heard these quotes before from Madison. Very, very important, very, very telling. But the great objection drawn from the source to which the last arguments would lead us is that the legislature itself has no right to expound the Constitution. That wherever its meaning is doubtful, you must leave it to take its course until the judiciary is called upon to declare its meaning. I mean, just let's just stop here. Doesn't that sound, I mean, it literally speaks to the time. I mean, imagine if you had James Madison. There's no greater authority, not just because he was the greatest architect of the Constitution, but also because he himself particularly was more oriented towards a, towards a strong judiciary. And, you know, unlike a, a George Mason or a Patrick Henry or even a, a, a Thomas Jefferson, and he's like, you know, because that's literally what we do nowadays. Oh, pass a law. What do the courts think? No. I acknowledge, now this is very important. Look at this. I acknowledge in the ordinary course of government that the exposition of the laws and the Constitution devolves upon the judicial. So right off the bat, you see that's judicial review there. He knew that it was inherent in being, you know, the exposition of the laws, which everyone agreed they were, that the exposition of the Constitution would also inevitably come in and they would render the opinion. And it would be prominent, quote, but I beg to know upon what principle it can be contended that any one department draws from the Constitution greater powers than another in marking out the limits of the powers of the several departments. The Constitution is the charter of the people to the government. It specifies certain great powers as absolutely granted and marks out the departments to exercise them. If the constitutional boundary of either be brought into question, I do not see that any one of these independent departments has more right than another to declare their sentiments on that point. I mean, dude, that is a money quote from the money man at a money time. The first few months in 1789. You can't get better than that. You can't get better than that. But it, but it, it, it goes further than that. Goes, goes further than that. Um, so what, what, what ultimately happens? Do you come crying to the court? You, you watch the debate in the, in the confirmation hearings from both Republicans, Democrats, and Kavanaugh. It's all about the courts being the referee. The premise was, you know, Congress and the executive disagree. The premise was the courts are the are the arbiter. The, the, the only one was, you know, the only issue was, you know, what are your views? But that the judiciary is the daddy in the room, nobody disagreed on. It's appalling. Here's what Madison said. So... Again, getting back to the French Revolution, so you, you 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 had a lot of disagreements that started to come up in the Washington administration over his powers to deal with certain treaties with France and you know, do you recognize their ministers, this lawless kind of government they put together in the French Revolution when they overthrew the monarch? 
Um, it was very, very delicate, very delicate diplomacy taking place there. You know, France was a dumpster fire, but on the other hand, they didn't want to tick them off. They obviously just a few years ago were, you know, helped them defeat the British. So in um, pacifist v. Helvidius debates, was, those were the pseudonyms for Hamilton and Madison. Um, Hamilton started writing a bunch of anonymous letters, op-eds, uh, bashing um, you know the, fr the the French and making it clear that the administration policy was not to back them and recognize them. And Jefferson, as the Secretary of State, was pissed at Hamilton. So he called upon Madison to write these Helvidius anonymous, that's a pseudonym, um, responses, rejoinders to Hamilton. So he addressed, you know, it came up separation of powers questions. And this is essay number two. So if you want to look it up, Helvidius essay two. He said, quote, it may happen also that different independent departments, the legislative and executive, for example, may in the exercise of their functions, beautiful language, interpret the Constitution differently, and thence, they, and thence lay claim each to the same power. This difference of opinion is an inconvenience, not entirely to be avoided. It results from what may be called, if it be thought fit, a concurrent right to expound the Constitution. Look at that. Notice, each one, when they're staying in their appropriate lanes, okay, if you have a legitimate case withstanding, that's your legitimate thing. If you're legislating, you're, um, you know, enforcing your power of the purse, that's legislative lane. You're enforcing uh, the police powers or engaging in foreign commerce, that's the executive branch. But inevitably, they didn't think it would happen that often, but they knew what would happen, who decides on the Constitution. The answer is, you all do. You all do. Notice he said, for example, the legislative and executive didn't say, oh, so you go to the courts. Now, you could go to the courts if, and this is a big if, there's a legitimate, valid grievance. There's an aggrieved party. I don't, I don't like this notion of Congress crying to the courts if the, they don't like what the president's doing. They have, the, they have actually more robust powers. They could get the better of him. They don't need to come to the courts. It would have to be that because of a certain policy that results from it, an individual could come and say, look, I mean, the president is, is enforcing this on me, and, and it's just like it's not right. It's not what statute is. It's not what the Constitution says. Or let's say, it's, let's say just to say constitutional, it's not what the Constitution says. Could you give me relief? And that's fine. The court could rule on that. But that the court is like, boom, legislature right or executive right. No, it doesn't work that way. And the other branch is still free to push back, in my view, and in James, and, and in James Madison's view. Final quote from him. So what ultimately happens then? Okay, so what, what does happen? Right, what happens? It goes round robin. You know, each one's fighting against each other. Where do we head? So, you know, obviously the legislature, you know, especially if it's the legislature and the executive versus the judiciary, I mean, they never even envisioned that. That was so pathetic. I mean, the main thing they viewed is the legislature versus the executive. I mean, again, the notion that the legislature and the executive could both be upholding like a 200-year tradition and custom of the country, and, and that a court could just come in and say, unconstitutional, and that the other branches were like, oh, man, yeah. I mean, I don't agree, but what could I do? There's nothing I can do. It's the law of the land. I disagree. 
Well, no. If you agree, then you should follow it. If you're unsure and you want to defer to their, you know, your view of their expertise, that's fine. But if you vehemently disagree, I mean, I love these statements. While I vehemently disagree, the court decides the law of the land. That in itself, as Lincoln said, is very problematic because the Constitution is the law of the land. And if you're saying that that's the Constitution, then you're violating your oath because you swore an oath to uphold the Constitution, and you're saying you believe the Constitution is not that way. So ultimately, and um, I'm just trying to see exactly where where this is. Just bear with me for a minute. I'll I'll um find it as I'm talking. I'm trying to find the source. I'm trying. It, it was later on in his life that that Madison said this. So this this quote was from much later. Um, and by the way, the Helvidius quote was 1793. So that was also very early on. Um, but here, let me just. Try to find this. Um, do, 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 do. Man, I have so many of these writings and I can't even remember what I have in my book and what I don't. I don't even know if I have this one in my book. But the quote was, so, 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 so ultimately, Congress is going to have the better of it, right? That's obvious. If they are, are really committed to their views, which they're not. Um, and also we have the party split, and even the better party really agrees with the worst party. But his his assumption was, and, and it's very clear from this letter, that his assumption was what everyone's assumption was, that the starting point is that the legislature is always going to win out. It's just, can we, the judiciary, when we disagree, can we try to ignore them? But the question is, can the legislature try to ignore the Judiciary was obvious. Of course they would, and they'd win. So he asked the question, what is to control Congress when backed and even pushed on by a majority of their constituents to enact something, let's say, as unconstitutional? What, what, what do you ultimately do? Now, you might ask, well, Madison, what type of stupid question is that? Mr. Madison, that is just dumb as, as mud. Why, of course, the court, the courts decide. No. <laughs> what did he say? Nothing within the pale of the Constitution but sound argument and conciliatory expostulations addressed both to Congress and to their constituents. It's debate. It's what I said. It's the people as a whole. We all have a responsibility to say, hey, what you're doing is garbage. It's got to stop. It's not to exclude the courts that you wouldn't also maybe try to go to the courts if it's a legitimate standing and legitimate power of the judiciary. But it was clear to people that if the Congress disagreed, they had the power to, to, to completely ignore them. So therefore, you would ultimately need the body of the people. Sorry to go long here, but I, I just really had to get that point out to come full circle. That is what I mean. That is my view of constitutional interpretation, who decides what the role of the judiciary is, what the role of the legislature is, and the history behind it. That is obvious, and I think that view will answer a lot of questions. Some of you in the audience who go to law school and you'll – you know, read law review articles or hear from professors that, you know, different people supporting judicial review early on, even before Marshall, you know, it's not, it doesn't, it, it, it works harmoniously with what I'm saying. Judicial review is one element when understood properly of not judicial supremacy, but constitutional supremacy. So this is it for the first part of our theme today, that everyone in government, everyone, everyone in politics, right, left, anything in between, they're all getting it wrong. They're getting the most fundamental question of government wrong. Who interprets the Constitution? Who's the law of the land? And it just, it just astounds me 
at how we allow a body politic to continue erroneously giving false pretenses for every major policy issue. So that's the judiciary. That's that you know enough said on that for now. But then you have just the budget. Everyone's agreeing, oh, we can't have a government shutdown. Can't have a government shutdown. The so-called opioid crisis, which the Senate's going to vote on a package of 70 bills packaged into one on Tuesday or Wednesday this week, all revolving around this erroneous premise that there's this crisis with people getting addicted to pharmaceuticals and dying record levels of people dying at record uh, numbers because of pharmaceuticals when it's absolutely not true. And the solutions they're proposing are part and parcel of the problem and the real problem which is immigration and borders and and drug cartels, they're ignoring and downright helping and then working to let drug traffickers out of jail. This This is everything that's going on this week. How could our government be so wrong on so many things? Well, it's because we have a left in this country that's pushing this stuff, but we don't have a right to right the ship. To call this out. You know, I, I wrote on Friday, last article of, of last week, a piece kind of explaining the closing argument for Trump and the Freedom Caucus to make a fight on the budget. And since I published that article, you look over the weekend, President Trump actually said, yeah, I want to fight. I mean, he's he's equivocating and kind of vacillating back and forth, you could tell, and he has nobody to support him. Now, you know I criticize him when I feel he's wrong and others are scared to do, including colleagues of mine. But what's so bizarre here is you don't even have to disagree with the White House. Well, I mean, I don't know what the White House is. His advisors, I guess, are are leading him astray. The Republican leadership are leading him astray. But Trump himself has signaled he wants to fight. Now, obviously, if left to his own devices, his messaging is kind of off. He's saying, oh, I want to shut the government down. That's not the point. You, you, you don't ascribe blame for the shutdown on yourself. You demand that the House pass your bill, and they pass your bill. And they're like, look, we're funding the government. You guys are shutting the government down to fund sanctuary cities and not fund border security? Really? That's the way to message it. But we don't have a movement doing that. This is what I don't understand. We, you know, since Obama's speech on Friday, our movement and all my colleagues in conservative media are fixated on that speech. And I'm not saying there's nothing to talk about. There's plenty to say. It's you know, it's it's interesting how Obama has all this uh, virtue signaling about wow, you know, what did conservatism and the Republicans used to be? Yeah, really. Back in the Bush years, all that collegiality, they savaged Bush like anything, and now they're praising him. I I made a comment on Twitter that, mark my words, in 10, 12, 15 years from now, you're going to have the left lament uh, the days of thoughtfulness when we elected Republicans like Trump. You know, in other words, when whenever they're no longer a threat, they're a thing of the past, they're like, yeah, you know, you should be like Republicans were back then. There's a lot of things to say, but why why is it that all we care about is reacting to what the left says rather than making our play? The entire conservative policy movement, media movement, demanding that Congress follow Trump's lead and back Trump up, give him the talking points, give him the encouragement so he doesn't go back on it, and then make the left react to our budget bill. In other words, it will all be about immigration. Make the conversation where it's most beneficial to us, about substance, not about style. We're not going to win on style. Trump's style clearly is not pol- is not popular. They don't feel the sense of urgency they're going to get crushed in the elections. Now, let me tell you, you look at uh, the Texas Senate race, it's bad. Now, I think ultimately Cruz will still win, but think about it. This is our California, but you you could see there's no such thing as a red state the same way there is a blue state. Even 
at the high watermark of the 2010 elections when, you know, that was like the reverse of this. Republicans were doing the best. There was no chance in hell we were going to take any statewide race in California, even remain competitive. Yet they could challenge us and fight us to the brink, even in a state like Texas. This is why we need a new movement. We need a new party. We need new messaging because in the long run, you can't win like this. In the long run, we're almost like the Confederacy in the Civil War where – Yeah, maybe you were successfully holding them off in the beginning in Virginia and other places in the South, but the entirety of the war was fought on your territory, and you could almost never fight on their territory. You will never win a war like that. Electorally, that's where we are. Where even the red states, we have to fight tooth and nail to win in. There's a problem with that, and it's not like O'Rourke, that this um, you know phony Hispanic. You know his name is Bob, and he calls himself Beto. It's not like he's even running like a Joe Manchin, a phony moderate. He's running as the full shebang, the full you know Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren style uh, Marxist. He's not even pretending to um, to be moderate. Is it that hard to litigate the case against these people? Well, yes, it is when you don't have the imagination, when you don't have a vision. You know, speaking of looking outside of the false dichotomies of the time, I want to point you to an amazing product that has stood behind conservative review, conservative conscience for so long, and that's Purple Mattresses. Go to purple.com, watch their video. Watch them discuss the false dichotomy between soft and hard mattresses. You know, you are what you eat and you are what you sleep. Eating and sleeping are pretty much the cause of every ailment you have. Um, You know, I had for a while because I just sit at a desk in a very intense way. I do a lot of radio, a lot of recording, and I'm always kind of sitting in an awkward way, intensely concentrating on reading and writing and talking and whatever. So I started to get this fake sciatica. It's not real sciatica, but where where the um, muscle in the rear end slash hip is just clamping down on that sciatic sciatic nerve because it's so so tight. And once I, once Purple started, you know, sponsoring this, this broadcast and I got a hold of their products, it was, it was a life changer that this is thinking outside the box, the silicone material that their mattresses are made of. And then I also sit on their cushion. They have a cushion. You could check it out for a chair. Very worthwhile. So here's what I want you guys to do. You know, you might think mattresses are expensive. I'm not thinking of getting one now. Here's what I would do if I were you. Go to purple.com, buy a mattress, promo code Daniel. It's a hundred day free guarantee free trial period. If you don't now shipping is free and if you don't like it the return shipping is also free so it won't cost you anything. Try it for 3 months. See how it feels. I guarantee you <laughs> you'll realize like holy smokes I was sleeping on that garbage before you're going to want to keep it. But if not free shipping free return you get your money back. If you want to keep it it's a it's a 10 year warranty. Um that's that's a very long time. But make sure to issue promo code Daniel and you get a free pillow. Their pillows, I'm telling you, it's worth it just to get the pillow. Purple mattresses, the most comfortable, balanced mattresses in America, truly thinking out of the box with innovation. Now, if we only had that in our body politic, but we don't. So we have a movement that won't even get behind Trump when he actually is saying the right thing. They're distracted with nonsense. Certainly when he isn't saying the right thing and we need to redirect him, we don't have a movement to do so. But he actually is kind of teetering. And Mark Levin was like, good for you. He tweeted out at him, you know, giving him encouragement, but no one else is even focused on it. Anything to distract from the real policies that matter. The last issue I wanted to discuss is this opioid bill. As you guys well know, I've been, I probably did 20, 30 articles on this proving how you know, we, we always had a certain number of overdoses in America gradually rising. And then suddenly in 2013 to 2015 to 2016, 
things went bonkers and just the deaths soared threefold, fourfold. People were dropping like flies in this country. And the body politic blamed it and the media seamlessly blamed it on prescriptions. And the entirety of the increase, the entirety, 72,000 deaths from drugs last year, the entirety of that increase was from illicit drugs. Fentanyl is the big one, but meth, cocaine, which aren't even um, opioids. This is a polydrug crisis, all brought in through the border. Um, a lot of, certainly all the cocaine and meth and um, heroin is all in through the border. Half the fentanyl is coming from there. The other half is coming from directly from China, but it's being mailed to the Mexican drug cartels. How are they operating un- detected on our shores, that's because of sanctuary cities. That's why it started roughly around 2013, 2014. Those of you who are longtime listeners are familiar already with my thesis. So you would think if you had an opioid bill, you would have a bill that totally addresses the border crisis. In other words, having a budget bill addressing our immigration priorities and clamping down on the invasion from Central America and the UACs, which brought this in, by the way, and sanctuary cities, that's the biggest opioid package you could vote on. No, they're not doing that. Instead, they have all these nanny state programs to treat addiction, all these crony. And and you know what's funny? A lot of people accuse me of being in the pocket of pharmaceuticals, like I'm trying to defend them. And really, if you know my agenda, you know, even if you think I'm, I have an agenda. The agenda is implicating the open borders. It's not defending the pharmaceuticals. I couldn't care less. But what I always tell people, the pharmaceutical companies aren't even saying what I'm saying because they're they're supporting this stuff because they're in on it. They're getting money for these programs and these anti-addiction formulas of the you know things uh, of these new uh, you know drugs. It, it, it's such a BS. It really is. It's much like the cafe standards. You know, you'd think the auto companies would be all with us to get rid of them. No. They've already co-opted the trading, the credits that, that you trade to fulfill the mandates. Same thing with ethanol. There's nobody speaking out for us. And there's nobody speaking out for pain patients that are being killed by this. Some are committing suicide. No, it's not the greatest thing to have a heavy dependence on this, but this is the best they can do to live a normal life. They are not the people overdosing. It's the same druggy crowd that was always overdosing on all sorts of things that now, with the abundance of the cheap supply because of open borders, now there's more deaths. That's why most of the deaths are male. That's why most most of the deaths are younger. Nothing to do with chronic pain patients who are more older and actually more women than men. And then there's the other side of this. While this is mainly not a prescription problem, I've always admitted there is one facet that is a prescription problem, and that is Medicaid. The diversion problem, basically, um, and, and again, this is not a prescription use problem. It's a prescription abuse problem. It's the Medicaid demographic, which is overwhelmingly – well, look, not everyone who's on Medicaid abuses drugs. It's, but most of the drug abusers are – you know their, their life is in shambles, obviously, and they're on Medicaid. Medicaid, since the expansion, because that's something else that happened around 2013, 2014. It took effect. So basically you might ask, okay, Daniel, well, if you're telling me the entirety of the increase is due to illicit drugs and prescriptions are – plummeting they're way down to 2001 levels so much so that the pendulum has swung way too far the other way and prescription deaths are down then what do you mean medicaid why is there any prescription problem well the answer is because the prescription deaths are still higher than they should be relative to the amount that the prescriptions have plummeted and that is because of the diversion problem Basically, you have the Medicaid demographic where we, where we, every doctor's appointment, every drug, every visit to the pharmacy, every follow-up visit is absolutely free. So what they do is they, you know, a lot of them are 
um, you know, they're addicted to heroin, they're addicted to all sorts of stuff. So they have a lot of pain. So they get prescriptions because they do have legitimate pain. Then they have a bunch of prescriptions. They keep filling them up and then they sell them on the black market. That is all due to Medicaid. I'm going to link to in show notes and let me just uh, drop this in here so I don't forget when I'm done the broadcast. Um, data points that are going to knock your socks off just how eerie it is how um you know medicaid is just the 800 pound gorilla in the room a quarter of medicaid members receive the same pain medication from different prescribers that's your doctor shopping there see here's the deal if you're those of us in the audience that aren't getting freebies, every doctor's appointment is going to cost you. Every follow-up is going to cost you. And certainly if you want to go doctor shopping to try to get more pills, I mean, that's going to cost you. And then the pills are going to cost you. So that's an inherent check on engaging in such behavior. Medicaid's funding it. Why am I saying this? Because one of the provisions in this bill dramatically expands Medicaid funding for the addiction treatment. But it's like, dude, you're making the arsonist the firefighter before you spend more money on medicaid why don't you deal with the underlying problem of medicaid funding these prescriptions so that's the problem there now i'll be honest with you this bill is so vast i don't i haven't even studied all the provisions but nobody has and i literally have nobody to talk to on this issue so if you're in the audience and you've read the bill uh please contact me Dharowitz at CRTV.com because, frankly, I don't know everything that's in this bill, but they're voting on it. Before we even identify a problem, how could we be so wrong on the most basic problems in this country? Imagine for a minute, some of you heard this analogy, but it's worth repeating, someone coming into a doctor with a brain tumor. And you ignore the brain tumor and you start doing surgery to amputate his toe. So you've created two problems now. Because, you know, number one, you're now just killing the guy's foot. Those are your pain patients. But number two, through through thick and thin, through all the pain and, and uh, and discomfort that you're creating for the patient now with the foot sur- surgery, you're not touching on 1% of the true problem and you're ignoring it and allowing it to fester. And there's a reason for it because the drug crisis is huge. It's huge with the constituents, every state of this country. We could single-handedly win the election by properly identifying this crisis. But if we were to do that, it would implicate three things it would implicate borders slash sanctuaries it would implicate criminal justice reform what's happened over the last 10 years we've swung the pendulum back the other way and we're being weak on drug traffickers and we're letting them out of jail we're not prosecuting them in the first place and number three medicaid expansion and those three are untouchable. So therefore, we have to create a problem. Oh, no, no. Pain patients are uh, the too many prescriptions. Or, you know, you have a foot surgery, no pain meds for you because a bunch of druggies and drug traffickers, thanks to open borders, are taking heroin and fentanyl. And as we've noted before, a lot of this stuff is just laced with rat poison, laced with fentanyl. It, it's not even an addiction problem. You know, you have your young 18-year-old who goes to a party. He's not really addicted to anything. He wants to seek a buzz, unfortunately. He gets in with the wrong crowd. And whereas back in the day, he would, you know, have it overhang, a hangover, you know, maybe some problems, then learn his lesson. Now, your kid comes back in a coffin because it's laced with, with, with fentanyl. That's a national security problem. That is not a healthcare addiction problem, fundamentally more than it's ever been. But we misdiagnose things. Anyway, we're we're about out of time here. We're coming in on an hour here, and uh, you know we're going to start off a new new week. Um, I will be out 
so you'll have a little less activity from me, but still make sure you follow my colleagues at Conservative Review at CRTV as well. Um, for our Jewish listeners, Happy New Year. I hope you have a meaningful uh, New Year and uh, standing in prayer before the true judge of the universe, the true judicial supremacy, because there's only one supreme judge in this universe, and that is our Lord, the God of Abraham, not some ridiculous, unelected bozo that graduated from Yale Law School. God bless y'all. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.